Welcome back, everybody, to the crux of the matter. Um, it may look different from the last episode you're watching because this is our 13th episode, and obviously it's not at my house any longer. We're doing this one online. We're back at college. Me and Landon are just getting back into the swing of things. But uh, welcome back. Landon, how are you doing? I am happy it's Friday, done with classes, excited to go bowling later today, and blessed to have on a great guest today. So I'm excited. Yeah, and, and our guest today is Kryptos, who writes a substack called Seeking the Hidden Thing. He has a Twitter account of the same name, Kryptos, which is at underscore K-R-U-P-T-O-S. And uh, he's, he's fairly influential over there, and we wanted to have him on. Him being an internet anonymous Twitter poster makes him probably the right guest to discuss this episode today, which is about Christian community and the internet. But without further ado, Kryptos, how are you doing? Well, guys, thanks to be I'm, I'm glad to be on. I don't know. I don't know if I'm quite there yet for influential. Some people tell me I am, but um, I still think relative to other voices that I'm still fairly, um, you know, small time at this point. I mean, I hope to get bigger. So that would be good. And maybe we can take a step here in that regard, you know, talking with you guys today. So. Yeah. Well, we Sweet. appreciate you reaching out to the little guys. <laughs> well, it's all a bunch of little guys here talking together. So that's good. Um, yeah. yeah. And so kind of the subject that, you know, for the audience that we wanted to lead off with today um, is, is how do Christians interact with the online community? Because one of the things that we talk about a lot in modernity is, oh, the internet poisons a bunch of people's minds or the complete opposite, which is that the internet is the best thing to ever happen to humanity. And I think it's fair to say that neither of those are really completely true. And so as that wraps back over to our podcast, you know, one of the most important things about us, I would say the most important thing about me and Landon is that we're Christians. And so with this podcast that focuses so much on philosophy and history and politics, we wanted to really wrap it all together and make it applicable for where we're at today. And so I think as Christians, probably the first thing to lead off with is what makes Christian community different from other communities. Well, that's that's a really good question. And it's interesting with some of the like the political themes that are coming out to you know that are that are in the the news today you know ideas like you know christian nationalism that's sort of the big one that everybody's you know it's either a boogeyman or it's the greatest thing since sliced bread um but really what makes christian community is um the work of christ now this this is essentially when you look at most communities they are formed largely through um What's on? Oh, no, I'm drawing a blank with um, where you have unchosen bonds, right? So yeah. you grow up in a village, right? You have family connections, you have cousins around, friends around, multiple generations, clan. You've all been in the same place for hundreds of years, um, you know, or at least multiple generations, anyways. And you have an attachment to the land. You have attachment to the people around you. Um, much of the rules by which you live are just uh, absorbed through community. Much of the choices that you make are are made for you. You know, who you're going to marry, what work you're going to do, where you're going to live, who your friends are going to be. Um, now, I don't know the degree to which you guys are part. Like, I'm, I'm part of, of a Christian ethnic community, so I'm, I'm Dutch Reformed, and I'm in a Dutch expat community here, too. So... I experienced some of that here where, you know, kids are friends 
not because their parents are friends, but their grandparents are friends and their grandparents are friends and their kids became friends and now their grandkids are friends, hmm. right? And so they wow. get intermarried. And we have a, a little game that we call Dutch bingo. Like you don't gossip about anybody until you hmm. know who they're related to because you don't know like, oh, they may have gone to school with this person or that person's like best friends with so-and-so's cousin and you better watch what you say around so-and-so. So you, you pick up all of these these kind of rules um, what can and can't be done, and, and all of these things. Um, who you're going to marry, who your friends are going to be, what you're going to do in life. And all of it is unchosen for you, right? So that's kind of the nature and essence of community. So one of um, the books that I have on the list that you can probably throw into the show notes um, is comes from Alan Earhart's, Aaron Holt's book, um, the Lost City, the Forgotten Virtues of Community in America. So what Aaron Holt did is he, in in the 70s and 80s, I think it was, he went back and interviewed people who grew up around the turn of the century in the you know, 10s, 20s, 30s kind of thing, just as community was really starting to crumble and started interviewing them, what they noticed about the changes in their lives, right? And so... What Aaron Holt noticed, he says, when we talk about community today, he says, we don't want real community anymore. He says, we want the feeling of the community, but we don't want the real thing. And so he mm. said, and I quote in one of the, in one of these pieces, he says, we don't want the 1950s back. What we want is to edit them. We want to keep the safe streets, the friendly grocers, the milk and cookies, while blotting out the political bosses, the tyrannical headmasters, the inflexible rules and the lectures on 100% Americanism and the sinfulness of dissent. But there's no way to have an orderly world without somebody making the rules by which order is preserved. Every dream we have of recreating community in the absence of authority will turn out to be a pipe dream. And so what Aaron Holt does, and I think that he's correct on this, is he narrows down on to this problem of choice. So he says the, the twin... Um, the twin pieces, and, and he really attributes it to economic freedom, right? So as the economy grew, you had more options. You could, you you had the, at the same time, you know, um, the, the, the vote for women. So you had options for women in the workplace, right? So you could choose, you didn't have to marry the guy that you wanted in your village. You could go off and you could, you know, have your own career, do what you wanted. You could make your own choices, right? And you could buy the things that you wanted to buy, right? And then, but as this kind of began to break down, this attachment to the community. So one of the examples he uses is the, um, uh, the Carrier Air Conditioning Company in Ames, Iowa, right? He says, well, they used to have their headquarters in Ames, Iowa. Well, if you've got shareholders that are spread all over the world, um, you know, and you start to have an attachment to shareholders, you, you know, what's your attachment to the people of Ames, Iowa? Right, you don't really have any. So once that that sort of that that bond with the community is broken, well, you can just up and move the factory, right? This so was, he said, like, all. Go sorry, ahead. I was just going to say this was like this showed up during the Trump administration, right? He was like getting yeah. really mad with these American car manufacturers that are like, well, we're just going to go build a plant in Mexico because it's cheaper. And if they would have been connected to community, they would have valued that plant in Atlanta, That's, Georgia, or wherever it was the most, they would have cared yeah. about Atlanta, Georgia, or whatever the example Ames, was. So yeah, so the quote, so I lifted in this piece, I lifted one of the quotes, right? Once the pressure of the global market had persuaded the Lennox Corporation that it had the moral freedom 
of choice to make air conditioners wherever in the world it wanted to. The bonds that had tied it to a small town in Iowa for nearly a century were breakable. And then he makes this comment about um, conservatives. He says that in the end, there is no escaping the reality that the market is a force of disruption of existing relationships. To argue that markets are a true friend of community is an inversion of common sense. So basically, if you talk about you know family values, community values, the strength of community, the strength of small towns, um, you really probably shouldn't be a free market like um, you know booster that way because right. the he says the, the 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 nature of the market is built around choice, right? millions and billions of people exercising their choices freely and you know this you know who are we to say you know how these choices are going to be made if you try to control or dictate these choices well you'll end up making bad choices you just let the market play out let just people make choices with complete freedom so we have come to elevate this idea of choice over and above all um, all other things and as Ehrenholt says you know to idolize markets and to call oneself a conservative is to distort reality right mm-hmm. so he he tags onto this whole thing is you know and he says to worship choice and community together is to misunderstand what community is all about right so you know we want it we want personal autonomy we want no one telling you how to live your life you don't want anybody in your business trying to tell you right from wrong you know why should it matter what i do as long as i'm not hurting anybody and these are the attitudes of someone who's conditioned by the market conditioned by a certain reading i think it's inherent in the whole nature of you know of rights and freedoms, this idea of personal choice, um, that this idea of liberty shifted from freedom from state oppression, such that you know um, the citizen could then be free from an overarching government and determine their own affairs in the community, to maximum amount of freedom to make as many personal choices as possible without limits or restrictions, right? And so now you get to this whole position where um, I shall have no unforced relationships, right? So even even something like, say, a child, right? So it's my right not to have an unforced relationship. So if I don't want to have a relationship with a child, I should be able to abort that baby. But if I want to have the relationship, well, that's fine, but it's my choice, right? And that's right. the length to which you have. So that's kind of how you go as you, as you carry out this thing of the breakdown of community, right? That's kind of the way... That you got so that's that's largely those are the kind of factors. So he talks about Aaron Hall talks about like I think five basic factors. So choice is one of them. The other is privacy, right? In a real community, everybody knows everybody else's business, right? And that's one of the things that maintains right. the moral social fabric is that everybody knows you have a limited amount of privacy. Anytime you do anything, it's quickly known by everybody, right? You do anything that's interesting or which violates community norms and you find yourself the subject of endless gossip, right? Right. So that's that's good. So we want privacy. And then the other one is authority. Okay. So real communities are unapologetically hierarchical, right? There is always one person or a small cabal of people who make and enforce the rules and morality in the community. And there's no way to get around that. Right? You cannot have a community without having authority. Somebody is in charge and they are making and enforcing the rules. Um, and the other one is is sin. Okay, so the other element, and so he says, 
that one of the elements that defines community is a clear moral imperative, a clear sense of right and wrong. This is what we as a community deem to be right, and this is what a we as a community deem to be wrong. And it's written into the social fabric, enforced by that hierarchy, uh, maintained by a lack of privacy, and then, um, you know, and, and, and alongside of, of um, a lack of choice, right? And so, you know, people, when they had the option to make unlimited choices, well, naturally, you would find your community suffocating, right? Yeah. So now you go into into most Western side Canada, where I live, America, where I did spend a fair bit of time and, and, and now too, is that you're hard pressed to find very many communities at all. Because once you once you label those characteristics, you realize like, oh, we might have nice places with clean neighborhoods, but do we have a real community? And mm -hmm. so that's where Aaron Hall gets back to the thing of, of we have the appearance of community, but we don't really have community itself, right? And because we don't want the, the characters go. So now, just while we're on this, and maybe this gets into some of the larger frame. So we had a kind of golden era as community broke down to where we are today, a kind of golden period where people still interiorized the rules of community, but they got out into society. So they carried with themselves with this greater amount of freedom. They carried the community with them. So social breakdown didn't happen overnight, but it happened kind of gradually. So they, they had a kind of golden period where they had a society that was still largely um, run by the small communities in the backs of people's heads, but now they made more free choices. But you go on several generations and that and that deposit that was left behind erodes, now you just have a society that has choice. So now you go in and you have tent cities in the streets, you have uh, riots in the streets, you have chaos everywhere, drugs abound, people are lonely. Uh, men and women finding themselves living solitary lives, people are finding solace in video games, you know, that classic New York Times with of the young lady with her in her computer with her cat and her glass of wine, right? Um, right, and so eventually, either one of two things is going to happen: either at some point your society is either going to dissolve into chaos, or order is going to have to be restored, right? And if it isn't being restored at the local level in those small communities, because we did this largely intentionally, because in a technical society, we can get into this, it naturally wants to move from small communities, small businesses, to economies of scale and ever greater scale, which is one of the things that technique allows you to do. And it also allows you to accumulate power and political power at scale as well, too. But in order to accumulate that power at scale, you have to consciously break down these communities. So that's what economics does, the political. Does. And so we see these forces at work breaking down communities intentionally in order to accumulate power centrally. Now, part of the current regime, their power was built by breaking down barriers. That was part of the whole thing, right? We're going to break down barriers and that you still see that mantra, right? You're being progressive by breaking down barriers, breaking down barriers. So breaking down barriers in the areas of sexuality, breaking down barriers in the areas of gender, breaking down barriers in the areas of race, even in terms of nationality, we're breaking down our borders. So we have no barriers between us and the insider, outsider. There's just no barriers at all. Right. Right. But at a certain point in time, either society breaks down totally or somebody steps in and restores order. Now, if the communities aren't restoring order, the entity that restores order is the state. And they will do so specifically in those ways that form community. But now they do throw do so through state power. And they, because 
technique and technology um, and, and technical administration are the means they use to accumulate and gather power, they will then enforce a kind of you know, mass society or mass community. So you'll begin to eliminate choice, but they'll do throw through state dictate, right? Um, and privacy. So now you will move into the surveillance state, right? Right, yeah. Um, authority, who's going to be writing the rules? The state is going to be writing the rules. It's not going to be the old grandma down the street telling you what to do. Somebody's going to be telling you what to do, but mm. now it's going to be some bureaucrat in an agency writing rules for you. And then as we see now today too, sin is defined um, by the state as well too, right? So, um, you know, so racism is a sin. Um, Islamophobia is a so, sin. Yeah. Islamophobia. So now you can see the state beginning to take over this role. And sooner or later, they, they, you know, a choice will come with, you know, the dissidents that are in the street, like Antifa burning things that right now that anarcho tyranny serves the state, they'll either get a grip on it at some point. And sooner, sooner or later, there will be a point where order will be restored or, you know, we will slip into kind of you know, anarchy, that that would be the route where the country breaks up into pieces. Somebody will restore order, right? Mm. You know, Red Seas or Blue Seas or some of these kind of crazy ideas, right? Right. Um, but, but you can see sort of in the breakdown of community that what happens then is as that order is restored, it will be restored by the entity that power entity that replaced community because it used to be the community provided a buffer between you and the state right mm -hmm. so again for an example if you look at like who were the people that resisted covid right the most well it was the one of the biggest groups was christian churches well why do christian churches resist the um covid well because christian churches have a functioning community and in that functioning community although people might find them more suffocating and oppressive the people in those communities are generally less regulated by state propaganda than the general than general public, and they're more likely because they have that buffer to think for themselves, right? And so they will yeah. question the dictates of the state because they have the community there buffering them from state propaganda, and so it provides kind of an inoculation, and um, you know, the, the, and the different value sets. So they weren't run by fear because people have faith, right? Well, like I, you know, if I die because of COVID, then well, you know, my my life is in God's hands. I know where I'm going, right? So why should I be afraid, mm -hmm. right? And we had it too when we made the decision in our family to like take the vaccine because my mom and dad, who are in their 80s, did it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we didn't really like the idea of them being alone all the time, the two of them, right? So that was one of the things that played into that. And I said, well, I'm not going to be afraid of the virus, and I'm not going to be afraid of the vaccine either, right? So mm -hmm. we'll just do what we need to do. And it's for me, it was not like I didn't feel like I was um, taking the mark of the beast or anything by uh, <laughs> by doing that. But it was just sort of one of those things that we did for personal and for family reasons. Um, largely for the same yeah. logic is that, well, if I'm not going to be afraid of the, vi of the virus, I'm not going to be afraid of the vaccine either. Right. And so I think this is maybe one of those things where Christian community is different from all other community um, because uh, me and Landon were actually talking about this earlier before we hopped on with you at, at dinner. And one of the things we were talking about is that the, one of the things that makes the Christian community unique is how it orients itself because other religions are either completely oriented towards the eternal, right? It's only about... Mm -hmm. You know, if you're a Hindu, it's only about escaping. Uh, what's it called? What's the word, Landon? Help me. Yeah, the, well, you're reaching Dharma. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Well, 
one of the things I would argue that that makes Christian community different, other than the the organizing principle of Christ, right? So we're it's a community founded by by Christ. But one of the things that makes us we so we began this talking about this by most communities that are well functioning um, happen because of um, unchosen bonds. Now there is some of that in long standing Christian communities, but if you look back to the beginning. The Christian community was started from scratch. You think, well, can you start a community intentionally from scratch? And you think, well, no, you can't, right? But actually, you can. Um, so that period of, of the the whole process of learning all of those unspoken ways and learns like what does it mean to be a Christian? That's really the discipleship process, right? So that's one of the things that you see Jesus doing with his his own disciples was he was teaching them how to believe, teaching them how to be community, right? And so we take people from outside of the community and you enfold them into the community through discipleship. So we tend to be very, very intentional about it is that you make somebody a Christian um, through that discipleship process. And that's sort of what, that's that enculturation process that brings them into, um, you know, where, and, and also in the discipleship process, you then submit yourself to authority, right? Which, you know, right. The, the Western churches have not, since the Protestant Reformations, have had a, a, a problematic relationship with authority, which is one of those things I think that the church is going to have to confront going forward, right, is, is its relationship to authority. But it's really this process of discipleship. So then as a Christian community, then we really, and this is one thing, it's funny because I picked this up from, from Oswald Spengler. Um, I should probably put that, although maybe I shouldn't direct your readers to Spengler. That might be a little bit too much. Um, <laughs> but, it's, but, but Spengler made the argument that, because he had a unique theory of cultural history, and Spengler made the argument that, that Christianity was the only people without an attachment to land per se, which made them unique, right? He called them a ghetto nation. And I thought that to me really, really fits in a sense that we are in the world, but not of the world. We are formed of the spirit um, to walk alongside of and to be alongside of the dominant culture typically. So that's not really... You know, at, at its core, the Christian community is not meant to form a Christian nation per se, although we are our own body politic, right? So um, this is one of the things that, like, say, the rule of St. Benedict notes, that when you bring Christians together, what Benedict did intentionally was to create a set of, of quote-unquote, laws on how do we live together as Christians, right? And so... Mm -hmm. The, the, the body itself has a kind of political formation, but it also has its own kind of purpose and logic that it's not, um, in a sense, political in the way that the dominant political, because there's still that, that injunction, you know, to submit to the king, because the king has the, he enforces um, he know, God's will. He holds the scepter, and it's his job to enforce justice on earth. He's, he's God's yeah, representative to, of justice. Said, to, punish, to punish the evildoer. In a right. sense, so he's the he's the he's the living presence of God's judgment. So there's this recognition that the king um, has this divine role of of divine justice, in a sense of of um, protecting the community from uh, you know from the kind of evils that can result when when evil is left unchecked. So that that you know the the king then punishes the wrongdoer, and that was so really the 
the church is not meant to take that role, but yet at the same time it does because Paul gives that injunction, you know, like, why are you suing each other in the courts? Can't you resolve these disputes among yourselves and not subject Christ's name to embarrassment, right? Right. So, but at its heart, our, our community is, while it has political aspects, is not primarily oriented as a political body, right? So it's not designed, so we kind of govern ourselves as a body um, but there is this potential, right? So you have all of these different roles. So you could have a calling into public service, right? Or, you know, what happens when you're a king and you get converted? You know, now you have a choice to make. How do I govern, right? Constantly. So there's there, there's segments in the Christian population among dispensationalists, some Anabaptists, Mennonites who are Anabaptists, where they're very much uncomfortable, you know, you know, Christians should have nothing to do with politics. It's corrupting, and, and we can get into some of the reasons why, because they're absolutely right. It, it, you know, um, it, and this is Tolkien was right too. This is the the ring of power, right? You know what I mean? So, right. you know, you can you can wield the ring of power, but it's it's inherently corrupting, right? But that there is a divine role in a sinful world for that administration of God's justice, right? So Christians have to be thoughtful then about how they wield power. Because let's say you are successful as a Christian community and you convert the vast majority of the nation and suddenly you're majoritarian and, and you know, um, or the elite of a society converts, which is what often ended up happening. And now you don't necessarily Christianize at the tip of a sword, but the common folk kind of get the message that if the leadership are all Christian, we know which side our bread's buttered on, that, you know, maybe we better be Christian pretty quick too, right? Right. And even if we aren't, maybe we better act like we are because, you know, so that's kind of how a Christianization is. So you have the Christian society, but it flows out of the relationship between, um, you know, the the specific role of the church. And as you get into the, the, the role with the state, so you have this, this sword wielding power, but then you also have this grace administering, right? So, there is a sense, this tension between the two. I think in some ways, maybe the Orthodox Church does a better job of it than we do. Um, they don't necessarily try to justify, say, war. You know, So when the king comes back, he has to go through confession and rituals of confession and a period of um, you know, penitence following a war um, because of the people that he, that, you know, the evil he's done in, in, in killing, even if to defend his people. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's there's some of these dynamics that go into. But so but our as we as a Christian community are built, not first of all, as a political entity, but we're built, first of all, as ministering God's grace. But yet at the same time, we have a leadership structure which gives us a certain um, you know political elements, we might say, within that that structure of grace. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't I don't feel like that's a fully satisfying answer for myself, but I think that more or less encompasses. But yeah, so we're built. I guess that the biggest thing, and and maybe to to highlight just sort of go on, um, is that you know there's those passages. There's no Greek or you know Greek or Scythian barbarian free male or woman, and it's it's not like we erase those differences, but getting yourself into the kingdom of God into the church, being a woman, being a man, being Greek, being Scythian, being barbarian, being a Gentile, being a Jew, um, being rich, being poor, none of these normal status markers will do anything for you as you come into the kingdom of God, right? right. And as you come in, in, in there's, a, there's a new organizing principle under the spirit of God and the gifts of God. So 
the hierarchy becomes readjusted. You see this in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul lays out that image of the body. Some are the eyes, some are the head, some are the feet, some are the unmentionable parts, right? But this, this hierarchy is reoriented around spiritual values, right? So it's reoriented around the values of spiritual leadership, around preaching, around discipleship, around um, the gifts of the Spirit, you know, healing, um, uh, signs and wonders, um, faith, uh, um, you know, so all of the you know, speaking to so that you have all of these gifts that, that people have. And so the hierarchy of, of the church is organized not around the kind of way that you were organized. So if you were a rich man, you might find yourself just being an ordinary Joe in the church because you don't, you lack the kind of spiritual gifts that say the, you know, the street sweeper might come in and the spirit of the Lord might fall on him. And now he's a leader who's teaching and you have to accept teaching from him, even though outside in the regular world, you're a businessman, you're a senator, you're whatever. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. In the church, you're just right. a guy sitting in the pew. And that real right. leadership might come from that simple guy who has a vision from the Lord. Right? And we can talk about some of that type of stuff as well, too. So that's kind of your and, and then you also let go of your old narrative. So even though you have maybe different ethnic characteristics, you know, a Dutchman's always going to be a little bit different from an Italian, from a Spaniard, from a Greek, you know what right. I mean? Yeah. And some of those bring strengths or whatever and weaknesses, but they, they're, they're organized under a new story, which is the story of God's salvation. So in a sense, one of my prophets say you kind of commit narrative suicide. The history that you used to have, you let go of that to take on the story. You know, David becomes your forefather through this process of enculturation. These are your, your in a sense, your true ancestors. Yeah, you become, you become sons of Abraham, which was one That's of the major right. dividing lines in the early church was the Jews thought because ethnically they were the sons of Abraham. But Paul yeah. says some will be grafted on. And at the same time, some old branches will be trimmed off. And so that's, that's right. kind of the way that, that God's designed it for yeah. us. So Roland or Beowulf or Romulus and Remus or, you know, Achilles, these are no longer your heroes in that sense. Right. Your heroes are now Moses and David and Elijah. And you take those stories into yourself and, and these stories become your story. And that's part of the whole discipleship process and that intentional community building is that those stories become your stories. Right. Right. So. Yeah, and I think one other thing, you brought up the Spengler quote about how the Christian community is the ghetto community. And I had it reminded me of something very similar, which is what Napoleon wrote uh, about Christianity. And he said, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself have founded great empires, but upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love, and to this day, millions will die for him, which I thought was a good way to illustrate your point. It is excellent, and it's also, I think, indicative of um, a distinction that Alul makes in his book on violence, too, which is well, which I don't know if we're quite ready for that yet, but maybe just hold that in the background. If we get to it, we get to it. But um, yeah, that's one of the things that that Alul wants to really mark out is this this world of grace on the one hand, where grace is at work, and then the world of what he calls necessity, um, where the old, the old self of sin and corruption operate, right? And he says, you know, even though we strive for the world of grace, we still live in a world of corruption. And that's where political necessity comes in, which is a topic that a lot of people are very, very uncomfortable with because it's not really nice. But 
we can right. hold that kind of in abeyance a little bit and maybe get into some of like you mentioned the the corrupting aspects of of technique and technology and how do you relate to technology in terms of community right, right? So, because... so to set this up a little bit i mean so we've been talking about community and, and what christian community is and to kind of move forward with that um you were talking about how the state kind of designs new communities and so one of the things that you mentioned was the privacy part and the internet kind yeah. of obviously is the biggest way the state can do that because it's not we're not yet at the point in america where the state is like the ussr and they're going in and they're like hey you have an orthodox prayer bible we're going to haul you off to siberia you know throw you on the train right now the only way they really have to like get into your privacy is through the internet and so it's like if that's the way they're creating community, how often oh, yeah. Christians try to interact with internet community, being being their own Christian nation. And mine is a pseudonym. Hopefully, one of these days I'll be able to 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 you know face post or whatever. But I have a business, yeah. right? So that deals with a large number of of a diverse clientele who are um, Asian, Muslim, Hindu, Sikh, um, Christian, atheist, atheist. whatever. Yeah. Um, so it, it's one of those things where you don't want politics to be in the way of, um, somebody using your services, right? So it's, it's one of those things. So, but, you know, in order to set it and, and we can come back to, again, that distinction, um, you know, if, if we look at the way that we were, you know, put in the garden, we were naked, right? Mm -hmm. So we had no, we had no barriers. So we have to, and I, it's good to remind ourselves that way because, you know, we talk about the world of grace and what we're striving for, right? So, and, and we see this in, in deep community, you know, there's these popular terms now, the long house, right? Where, you know, you, you have this world of, and, and I have a, a, you know, I get where they're talking about in terms of feminization or whatever, but I, I have a really hesitant relationship because in a true community, you don't have privacy. Right. And, and the healthiest communities um, are ones in which there's very little privacy, where everybody knows. Every, and you think to yourself, well, why is that? Well, you go back to the garden and we were naked. Right. And, and so nakedness and, and I would even go so far as like we we hide from ourselves, even in our subconscious, you know. So mm -hmm. you think to yourself that a state of grace would be to unlock that, that subconscious, unconscious parts that we hide from ourselves because we're terrified of sort of these primitive aspects or stuff. You know, I do tend to be a bit of a Jungian, but um, so you, you, my roommate listens to this podcast. He's going to love that. Anyway, continue. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, um, and I was a Jungian before Jordan Peterson, right? So I, I oh, okay. Sure, buddy. Yeah. 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 No, okay. I, I'm, yeah. 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 Um, so the, 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 the thing about this world of grace then is what we're striving for in community is a world in which we can have sort of, in a sense, a healthy nakedness with each other, where we can have right. a, a place of privacy and not be afraid where we have to cover mm. ourselves. Right. Maybe the word, maybe the word would be our, our true selves. That's right. We can be our true selves. We can, we can be in community. We can quote unquote, be naked and not be afraid. Right. But we don't live truly in that world. We live in a world of, as Lou calls, we live in the world of necessity. So the world of necessity demands that we make hard choices. Right. And we have to deal with sin and the realities of sin. And while the realities of sin is that by being naked, it can cost you. Right? right. And so you have to put up barriers. Now, these barriers then create problems. Right. Because um, they also create secrecy and things done in secret often become very sinful. 
right? So you can, by having privacy, you know, you can you can also do things um, that are immoral out of public eye. And you think, well, nobody's being hurt by this, but we don't realize how we, you know, with a shared human nature, and this is the whole one of the mechanics that makes the Christian faith work theologically, right? Is that you go back to Athanasius, you know, what is not assumed is not redeemed, right? So the whole of our human nature is is assumed. So one of the mediums by which grace moves through well is 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 through our human nature, right? So we are all connected just by by sin. One man sinned, all have sinned. And so that sin is passed on through our human nature. So in reverse, just one man dies, and through the death and resurrection of one man, all are saved. Now we can talk about you know what all means, but we'll leave, maybe set that aside for another day. But so, but it works through the same mechanism. So this idea that we can we can sin in private is just fanciful. So if you do something in private, you're looking at pornography on your community on your on your computer. You're corrupting everybody, right? Because right. of your shared human nature, there are no private sins. Right. So even if we have to have privacy to protect ourselves and to protect our lives and our livelihood, and it's a necessity of a thing we do, and we recognize that this is not what God intended, this is not what the world of grace is, but we do this. But we also recognize that that privacy also comes with certain dangers because it also opens me to the idea that I can sin and nobody notices. Right. And so I, you know, the, the, the thing about cities and the breakdown of community is it wants to tease you with this idea that you can have privacy and nobody will know what you're going to be doing. Right. Nobody's business. Right. What, mm-hmm. what, what you're doing. And you don't realize the kind of dis- like the cumulative destructive effect you're having, not on just on yourself, but also your neighborhood. I mean, you think of like a guy who does pornography, how it affects his marriage, right? And it affects his kids. Well, it affects all of his relationships. It just through his human nature, like through his human nature, he's just polluting his community. When one suffers, we all suffer in that right. regard, right? So that's that's kind of the sort this 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 whole nature of privacy. So. But then there is also in internet is is this idea of we would talk about massification, right? So we we have a kind of disembodied attachment. Um, so even though we connect through the internet, it's not it's not like a real connection because if you understand sort of person like human personhood, um, and this is probably more prominent in the Orthodox than it is. So you think of yourself as um okay you have a denying nature that you share with everybody and then you have a human personhood right mm-hmm. so we often talk about the things that make us different like say personality traits right i'm an introvert i'm an extrovert you know i'm a thinker i'm a feeler we take those basic jungian categories right um i'm i'm a judger i'm a i'm I'm a, or I'm a sensate, I'm an intuitive. And we think to ourselves, well, that's what makes me you. And I said, no, 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 you've just taken characteristics that you share with everybody or with a large number of people, and you're using those characteristics to create an identity out of your human nature. So you're severing yourself off using the thing that should be dividing. So with your human nature, this is the thing that binds you together. If you can put a name to a characteristic, that's not something that is uniquely yours. That's something that shares with somebody else, right? If you can use language to describe a part of yourself that, or, you know, that is connected to some, that makes you so-called somebody different. I'm an introvert. They're an expert. That makes us different. No, 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 no. If you can use language to describe a shared characteristic or even a different characteristic and identify it, 
that's something that's supposed to bind you together. The thing that makes you uniquely who you are is that something that can be experienced and felt but cannot be put into words, right? Mm. And so you know how you, like when you're connecting with a buddy, right, or a, a wife or girlfriend, and you get to that point where you just get each other and you look that person in the eye and you just know, right? Well, how do you know? What do you connect? And I wrote about this in this one piece on, on community. Well, ultimately what you have is you have a spiritual connection, right? And so we're made in the image of God and, and God in his essence is ultimately unknowable in the sense that you cannot put it into words, but you can meet God in the same way that you can meet your neighbor and you can know them. Like in a sense, like, you know, I can know Riley, I can know Lynn, I can look him in the eyes and he and I, we just get each other but because see my picture is up right even though mm -hmm. we're talking and we're communicating and we're using words we're never going to get to know each other the way that we could if we were face to face in a room we could throw each other's arms around each other or i can punch you in the shoulder you know what i mean mm -hmm. i can right i can look and we can laugh together we can you know we the, i've got the smell of you i've got you know it, it's there's that there's that bond right Mm -hmm. Enoch was talking about that in the group chat today, right? That, that and 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 um, you know, my Enoch pastor Powell. brought up that that you know, the thing like men, yeah, and but um, yeah, and but my pastor friend that he brought up that whole thing of like men need to have that tribal that that group bond of of like men. To, so our atomizing society drives this wedge between men, and we don't develop those deep bonds where we say you know we could hunt together wordlessly, right? That type of thing, right? There are some areas where you do find, and it's it's very similar to discipling. You talk about guys who who have soldiered together, right? And they develop that kind of deep, deep community bond. You can also see it sometimes on sports teams, where guys, you know, get that deep, deep bond. Um, you know, you have that intuitive feel for each other when you're playing team sports, right? Um, that's, and you that's can tell when they have true. good they have good chemistry. Right. So, you know, people say, ah, oh, sports ball, blah, 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 right. But there are some of these things where you can catch and you you're molding a team intentionally through coaching. Right. And you're right. molding a group of soldiers together through training. Well, those are basically forms of discipleship. Right. But the bond is real and it's tangible. So one of the things that the Internet does is it is it rationalizes the bond. So it makes it into an abstract thing. So it kind of floats and it's it's word based. Um, so it's right. So there's this whole, you're not really, you never really get at that kind of part of yourself that is uniquely you. Sometimes maybe you sense it, you can and maybe pick it up reading between the lines sometimes, but ultimately you don't get to know somebody the way you would as if you were there in person. And that was really the crime of COVID on the churches is that you, you can't do church online. It has to be in person. Right, because you can't build community online, like real, true community. You can build a simulacrum of community online, but you can't build the real thing. And so, um, and that's sort of the danger. And, and that's why, too, like with Twitter and so forth, and a lot of social media, um, because, and Alul talks about this in terms of propaganda. Once you begin to isolate people and, and abstract them from from real life and get them hooked into sort of checking the news all the time, be online, is that they live in this kind of constant presence of images and abstract thoughts. And you end up, you know, like uh, René Girard, you know, um, through through mimetic imitation, 
we self-propagandize each other, right, through through social media. So we don't even have to have the government propagandizing us, propagandizing us anymore. We do it to ourselves, right? That's that whole thing of like, I'm for the latest thing or I'm against the latest thing, right? Um, but it's, it's so we live in this world where we don't really have, you know, we have the simulacrum of community. Um, it's a rationalized technological technologized thing that makes us feel like a community but you know when you're in front of your screen whether it's tv whether it's social media right what are you you're alone right but you have yeah. the appearance of community right and that's why i've 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 i said to you know that you know eventually sometime at some point if what the dissident right is doing online as sooner or later the the anon status you have we have to find a way to take down the anon status so we can start gathering together in real life that the guys whose livelihoods are protected and threatened have to we talk about this too you want to build real community in a church right okay you can run programming in your church right but we think of what are the main problems right now you know holding on to 20 somethings in churches right they drift away well why do they drift away are they finding a job in the community right are they finding a spouse in the community right well that's second are they able to form a family right so in a in a in a functioning community for a church community yeah you can run 20 somethings programs but if you really want to keep your 20 somethings um you might want to have a vibrant economic like small business economic community where you can slot young guys and young women um, or especially young guys into into jobs now they may not be Wall Street jobs. They may not be three hundred thousand dollar a year jobs, but they should be the kind of jobs that you can raise a family on a single income, right? Or maybe build a household business where both are involved. Like in the, the before industrialization in the late seventeen hundreds and early eighteen hundreds, when most enterprises, whether it was a farm or a shop, were run as a household, the husband and wife together, each had their role, and being a woman in a household like that was a very fulfilling. You know, thing because you had a, a very full and rich role running basically a quote unquote household business, whether it be a farm or a shop or or whatnot. Yeah, well, there's a lot there, but uh, that's that's the one part you said towards the end there, where you're talking about one of the things we want to do if we want to accomplish anything politically, um, especially in these online sort of circles, is to be able to meet in real life, right? Because like you were yeah. saying, like actually being able to see people and everything like that. And obviously to some people, they're going to hear that there's going to be two, two reactions. I already think I can predict both of them. One of them is like the kind of the reaction of like what my parents or grandparents would say, which is that um, that's weird. Don't meet with online, online people. That's obviously like really creepy and odd. And the other one is going to come from the online people, which is going to be that, Hey, you're, you sound like a fed right now, which obviously like both of those might be partially true, but they're also kind of missing the point is that if you're not doing anything in real life to foster a community, then you have to find it somewhere because one of the most important things about us is that, is that we're social creatures. So how, so well, how would you address those two accusations that I've well, just set up as strong? they're all right? And, right? and then, you know, what's the degree to which you curate your, I mean, how authentic are you online, right? You try to be the person you are. I mean, you know, like I have a, a, you know, I generally tend to do my, my Substack tends to be serious and thoughtful. And, and you know this, Riley, too. Like my Twitter can be sometimes quite juvenile at times, right? You think you're a guy <laughs> in his mid-50s that, you know, 
really good. I'm I've I've always been the kind of person that will say the outrageous thing to get a rise out of people. I have you know, and, and it drives me. You're a button nuts. presser. Yeah, you're a button presser. Oh yeah, I will. And I do that. And so the way I am online on Twitter and, and the way the, the, the bifurcation between my Substack and, and like the serious writing and and Twitter where, you know, like as can I say poster on your thing, you know, um, I, I, I yeah. don't do that once in a while too. Right. And um, it's, uh, and I will just push people's buttons just to get it. Like somebody say like that, why did you get into that fight with that person? I said, oh, I was bored. Right. And I was, <laughs> I think really, and so it, but, um, but we, we do have, cause I have said that, that, you know, part of it is just very cautiously, carefully um, as we build community. You know, one of the, the, the reason why, like for me, like what made the internet so appealing to me, and, and, and this is another function of technological society. Again, we talked about, you know, the function of scale and aggregating on scale, right? So right. In, in a normal community, um, I would just be that weird guy who reads a lot of books. And if you get him alone and you get him talking, he'll just talk your ear off for an hour about stuff you have no idea and you don't understand, but you just kind of nod and listen because he's the old guy who reads books and maybe you'll learn something, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and I've learned very quickly that, you know, with a degree in theology, I, I do get to vent it sometimes preaching, which is nice, um, but that has its certain constraints as well too, right? So there's you have a limit to what you can say and what you can talk and, and you have an obligation to... Um, not push well sometimes you push people but you push people's buttons within within a certain not in the same way right? not in the same way right okay um but you you challenge them with the word of god right and and um it you don't have necessarily if you have some ideas and theology sometimes that maybe are a little color out of the lines you know the pulpit's not the best place to color out of the lines you know what i mean you just keep that stuff to yourself right um but the the thing that the internet does is it allows you to aggregate all the guys like me into an online community, right? And so you get this group of like, what is it, maybe 10,000, 100,000 guys, you know, which has its own kind of natural hierarchy. And we're all these guys that like, nobody cares because like nobody really does politics or whatever or, or theology or philosophy. Like nobody cares that, you know, and they just don't want to hear it. They don't want to talk about it. They want to talk about the, you know, the hockey game or the football game or, you know, the latest trick they took or, or whatever, you know, and that's fine. Right. But so what th this, you know, th why this in some ways is so addicting in some ways to us on one hand too, because this is now an outlet is like people actually care, you know? And, right. and so, um, but then, you have to connect that not only to other people like yourself, which is a good start, you build a network, but then you also have to connect what you're doing to people in real life. Like you have to reach out and talk to them. So, you know, the other day I took a, like, and I invited him into our group chat. So, you know, a pastor friend that I know, and, and we sat down and had a long coffee and I said, this is kind of what I've been doing. And um, I said, you know, I know you're not on Twitter, but if you ever want to be on Twitter, just hit me up and I'll invite you into the group chat and, and you can see what it's like. You can kind of jump from nothing into um, you can get everything the all at right once. Away. Yeah, everything all at once. <laughs> yeah. right. It'll I think, be a little uh, bit of an eye opener, right? Yeah. I think that's yeah. that's awesome. And you're on such a good rant right now. But Landon's like mic is completely cut. So, oh, I'm no, gonna, like, yeah. So I think what we're going to do is we're just going to. We're going to take a quick break here. We'll come right back. Sure. Um, so we'll be back in a moment. 
Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, just we get into the whole thing of, of we've been talking about, you know, relating to each other through the internet using, you know, cell phones, social media, um, you know, online blogging and all of this sort of thing. And you think to yourself, well, aren't these technologies inherently dangerous? Shouldn't we just unplug or whatever, right? And the first thing to say about that is um, in, today we've gotten to the point where the technical system is so all-encompassing, right, that um, people don't understand a lot of times when you think about it is that when you react to something, you say, like, social media is out there and I'm going to go off and I'm not going to use it. Well, that's a choice based on social media. You're still reacting to social media by being off social media, right? Now, you can choose to do that, and there's good reasons to maybe do that, especially in, in terms of, of propaganda and getting your own thoughts back and so forth, right? Um, but you have to understand that, you know, and, and we can, that that it was Vaclav Havel who said this too, right? You you have the communists, and, and you can make your choice to be anti-communist, right? But you have to know then that your life is being defined by the communists, by being anti-communist, right? So what, what Havel says is you basically want to do the right thing because it's the right thing. So whatever your choice you're making in terms of technology, you're trying to make that choice because it's the right thing to do and not because you're reacting against social media or you're, you know, you're becoming the anti-communist. And so your whole life is defined by the communist by being anti-communist, right? right. Um, yeah. So, so we have to understand sort of what, what is technology. And, and Elul argues that we, we tend to look at technology, first of all, as the devices in our hands. And, and Elul says that's really a mistake because it, it primarily technology is mostly a way of thinking about the world. Right. He says so. Prior to the, the what he called the technological society, there was always technique. Right. He says, but technique um, used to be embedded in tradition because tradition is actually a form of technology. Right. But the difference is with with tradition is it's embedded. It's organic and it develops over time, and it's rooted to the particulars of a of a of a community, right? So, what happens then in the move from that embedded techniques? And so, you you have simple tools at that time, and you use these simple tools, and you you put in your own ability. And the, the important thing is not so much the tool, but your ability with the tool, right? And in the transition from a tradition-based, you know, apprenticeship, learning, rooted, embedded, where your skill is what makes the tool come alive. What happens in the transition into the modern area through industrialization and into the technical, into the technological society, is that you begin to abstract, right? So, take for example another example I use. So you were say like a lord on an estate, and you wanted to entrust somebody to run your estate. Well, you just basically entrust this person. And he probably learned it from the ground up by, you know, um, let's say you want him to run your stables, right? And your stable master. Well, he runs all the barns, takes care of all the horses. He runs all the finances, the feed. Whatever. He's got a whole staff there. And everything he learned about running it, he probably started off as a stable boy and worked his way up. And he learned it all from the ground up. He did it through apprenticeship and so forth. And now he runs it based on his own skill and ability, right? Now, what happens is you say like like Taylor's time in motion thing, he comes in as the consultant and he sits down and he watches how the whole operation runs. 
and he breaks it down into a series of you know steps, procedures, policies, and he develops a policy manual. He develops a series of processes, like this is the proper technique for feeding the cows. This is the proper technique for, for cleaning out the stables. This is how we do everything. Everything gets broken down and it's abstracted, right? And now what happens is you can fire all the staff, right? And you can take yeah. in people sort of entry level and you can train them using, just you train them into the techniques. And what really what governs it now is not the person, but the technique, and you can see this in a whole range of things. Say, for example, teaching, right? What's the importance of teaching? You're not trying to train persons anymore. You're basically giving them teaching methods and you train them how to use the methods. So every, and then the idea is, is to create, rather than kind of lumpiness based upon the different skills and abilities of various persons, is you're trying to systematize it and create predictable, consistent results that are efficient, and so forth, right? And then, so what happens is this abstracting idea becomes very, very powerful because you can harness it to do all kinds of things. So you see it come before in, say, the French Revolution, where they basically technologized the whole state in and during the French Revolution. And just as the Industrial Revolution's happening in England, at the same time, you see all of these things like the growth of bureaucracy, um, the growth of social agencies, but at the same time, then the destruction of community, the destruction of small businesses, the destruction of the household as the organizing unit for, for family. And everything becomes gradually technologized with technique. And so you have this abstract way of thinking where um, technical processes sort of take over. So it's a way of thinking about the world that says, um, you know, um, that everything can be abstracted. You can develop a process, a technique. And in the end, the results don't even really matter. It becomes about the process. Anytime you sat down, well, we need to have good process here, right? Well, the results are only tangentially important. And this is why also, excuse me, nobody gets blamed, say, for something like COVID. Well, because we have all these COVID policies, all these COVID procedures. In the end, what happens? We get to their disaster. Oh, this is great. It's just good grist for the mill. We go back and now we redo all the policies, right? For the next time. And, it's, and so you have all these iterations of policy, and this this whole thing of is now human process, human progress. So every policy, then you, you know you have a mistake and, and so forth, it gets fed back and fed back and fed back, and you know policy and, and technique builds upon technique and so forth. Now, what Alul said is that the most important thing is this idea of technique, right? And so he argued that there was a number of laws, rules, or so. Um, we generally think of technique in, in usually one of two ways or three. One is it's either good or it's bad, right? So people say, well, technology is good or technology is bad, right? The other is that technology is, is neutral. It depends on how you use it. And that's probably the most common thing, right? So you see this in a whole range of the, the argument over gun laws, right? What, it's not guns that kill. It's, it's that, you know, if you use them improperly, if you train people how to use them properly, put them into good families or whatever, guns are a good thing, right? So the technology itself is neutral. Um, it's just how you use it, okay? Um, and then so we see this now also with, say, for example, the administrative state, right? So um, technique allows you to harness, um, it, it allows you to harness resources, power, people, um, uh, natural resources, and, and harness them for accumulating power and making money. And so you can see as, as the state grows, it, becomes, it grows on technique, right? And you think to yourself, oh, I'm going to, you know, why don't we just get our people into government, right? Well, 
The problem is, is that the state is not a neutral thing. Okay, so what Alul said is that all technique is ambivalent. It is neither good nor bad. It doesn't care. Right. Right. So all technical progress has a price. All technical progress have a price. So there will be benefits that come and there will be ills and harms that come. Right. And sometimes, oftentimes what you experience is that the benefits come very quickly and the ills often come down the road. Right. But then Alul argued is that at each stage of technical progress, they raise more and greater problems than they solve. So you have a certain number of ills, you go back to the drawing board and you try to solve them with new techniques. Generally what happens is you create more problems than you solve. Um, And then the third thing is that you cannot separate the harms from the benefits. In other words, there's no way to design a technical system where you can eliminate all of the negatives, right? And then finally, it has a great number of unforeseen effects. So as we said, a lot of the benefits for technology come front-loaded and the harms then come, and and a lot of times these harms cannot be predicted ahead of time. So there's no way that you you can try to plan out for them and they're inseparable from the benefits. And at every stage, they, they're more and more problems to become greater and more complex. And then sort of they become, and you know, every technology has its price, right? So Alul argues that just the fact that you introduce a technology is going to have certain effects. Now, if we combine this with an insight from, from um, Marshall McLuhan, where he says the medium is the message. And what McLuhan wanted us to see in technology is that the medium of the technology, in other words, the fact of the technology itself is more important than the content. So the real meaning of a technology is not the content, but the technology itself. So the, the examples that he uses, for, take for example, like a television, right? So the television itself and the very use of the television is more important than the television shows that you put onto it. And if we combine this with the Lule, the fact that you're using a television will have good effects and it will have bad effects and the two are inseparable, right? So, you know, you get like Neil Postman's um, works on television and the negative effects it has on your life. You're, just the very fact that you're watching television will have certain negative, it'll change your attention span, it turns you into couch potatoes, you gain weight, all these types of things. So, in the end, it really doesn't matter in some sense whether you're watching porn or you're watching wholesome TV, that television is going to have an effect on your life. Now, of course, naturally, if you're going to watch TV, you're probably better off to watch porn or to watch wholesome TV than to watch porn, right? Um, and But it, it works in the same way too. So government is the same sort of thing. Um, you know, you can have government inherently is it, the administrative state is a thing of technique. So it's going to have good effects. It's going to have negative effects. Now, would I rather have, say, somebody like Chris Rufo writing my my policies or somebody like the Democratic Party writing my policies? Well, of course, I'd rather have somebody like Chris Rufo. But we have to understand that a the administrative state is, itself is going to have certain effects, bad or otherwise, irrespective of 
the content, that the fact of the administrative state is more important than any one particular policy that you punch through. Same way with an automobile. The fact of the mobility of the automobile, its use of fossil fuels, is more important than any one particular trip that you might take with it, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you can go on and on and on with various things. Like, and I think the, the example that, that McLuhan uses is the light bulb. Right. And how the because he talks that the light bulb is pure content. He talks about because there is, you know what I mean? You turn it on, you turn it off. And, and the effect that the light bulb has on society in terms of regulating time and, and, and so forth um, are, are you can see how the, those changes, just the very use of the light bulb changes your society. Right. Um, for example, the use of the, the air central air conditioning on on um, breaking on the breakdown of community. Right, the fact that you have a nice cool house means that you're not sitting on your front porch and taking walks in the evening when it's nice and cool. Well, if you're not taking walks or sitting on your porch, you're not meeting your neighbors and your breakdown. So the air, the fact that you have an air conditioner and your house is cool. So whether you set your temperature to 75 or to 68 is it makes no difference. The fact that you have the air conditioner means that you're breaking down community, right? And these are the kind of things that we're talking about. So we get to something like social media. The fact that you're using social media will bring certain goods and it will bring certain ills, right? And you have to understand that the two of these things come together and there's nothing that you can do about it. The ills come along with it. So if you're using the technology, you have to go into it. Now, layered alongside of this, like this whole thing, because technology itself is integral to the notion of human progress, right? So you have this sort of iterative effect right. where... Um, and, and technology wants to do this. So you can see, so at every stage of technical development, you, you have one, you know, you have one machine or one process and it doesn't quite work. So you go back to the drawing board and you improve it and then you improve it and you improve it. And, and, you know, science kind of works this way. You know, you're supposed to every step, you know, you know, a little bit more, you refine your knowledge a bit more and you gradually move forward. So when you're talking about the social systems, what you put in a program, it doesn't quite work. And so you go back and you fiddle with it. Maybe it works a little bit better and you reform it. And, but you always have this, this, um, this direction with, with technology that it's moving, it, it has this inherent progressive ideology, like the technical society and, and, and sort of the technical mindset has this inherent um, progressive mindset that you're always moving forward. So in a certain sense, you know, if we're trying to rechange how we relate to technology as community, you're looking to sever that, 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 um, the idea of human progress from the technology. So to use like, because people use machines and, and tools for millennia without this progressive ideology labeled onto it, right? So one of the things that we have to find either it's a, a thing too is where you can either say no, because that's what communities did. If a, if a technology or a tool was too disruptive, they just stopped using it, right? The that's Amish what the are the best example of right this, right? Yes, the Amish are good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You just stop using it, right? Um, so you know, you can decide, you know, at what level, what use, what space. But the only way you can do that is to sever that that sort of progressive ideology that's inherent in the nation of technology. This is why all institutions move leftward and why the administrative state moves. Because the administrative state, the idea of abstract technical administration is designed to be at its basis progressive. So once you make the decision to use um, technique, uh, like, you know, policies, um, 
you know, administrative systems, all of these types of things that, that, that abstract um, technical administration techniques that are so powerful, that's why we use them, um, that once you make the decision to use them, you're naturally moving leftward all the time. You're moved because it's progressive. And this is why a big business is progressive. This is why, um, like say if in a church, once you start using um, technique, sort of like the church growth movement, right? So once you start using technique, as your, your natural thing is to become more, you know, any institution that's not self-consciously conservative becomes liberal. And part of the reason why that is, is because we use technique in, in our management. And so once you introduce technique into the, into the organization, the natural push is technical in nature, which becomes progressive in nature. And you begin to take on the characteristics of other progressive. And that's why, yes, you can go in and you can put your people into, say, an administrative state, and you can put in conservative policies and so forth. But the moment that you are not staying on top of it and putting, you know, where you're enforcing that all of the programming on the television is wholesome programming, the moment you stop doing, the natural inclination is because the television kind of wants to have porn and immorality on it, right? Because, you know, commercials and three seconds. So it, it tends to, to move towards that, that kind of progressive mindset. So in terms of relating to your technology, um, you know, no might be an answer to it. But at the same time, you have to go into it with eyes wide open and um, recognize sort of what is the nature and ask the question of sort of what is the, the nature of the device itself? Like, so what is the nature of Twitter irrespective of any, you know, one tweet that I send? What is Twitter doing to me? Um, what is its potential, right? You know what I mean? So on the positive side, it has a great mimetic potential, right? So the idea of uh, more so than say any other social media, for ideas to go viral, um, so that that kind of so there's there's but there's a downside to that is that you can also then you know propagandize yourself right so you have to ask yourself what is the mimetic nature of it? so and I there, there's no real way to kind of to to get out of it in that sense other than to as I say fundamentally change our relationship to tech so right now we live in a technological world. Um, and um, as I wrote in one of the pieces, you can, yeah, so you can look at it and say, well, the state is the enemy, right? Because uh, for various reasons, and we could, I mean, we don't want to re go into all, but one of the things that talks about in Autopsy of Revolution is that in order to, tr in order to shift a rebellion to make it a revolution, Alul argues, you need managers who can turn the grievances and ideas of the rebellion into a new set of institutions that can then instantiate yeah. those ideas, right? And make this, so you need to have a certain managerial culture in order to make revolution possible. And that's why you really see revolutions happening at a certain point in history with the American and French revolutions. They are a function of managerialism, both the American and French revolutions. And they then have that inherent progressive logic in them once they get going. So, and Elul argues that every attempt to reform the managerial state just makes it more efficient, more powerful, so that the next time you you know you get a new injection of content, it just goes back to its natural default self. So Elul argues that well, the only way to deal with it is to have basically have a revolution against revolution to sort of you bring the whole system down, right? 
and you then and and that you know i'm not a, a big fan of you know billions must die but that's kind of because when you when you're talking you're not talking just about bringing down the government so you're talking about being post-liberal right so we talk about you know post-liberal politics what does that look like wow we want to get away from you know rights and freedoms and all of the the kind of constitutional stuff to a more enlightenment ideals and stuff like yeah, that enlightenment that's what we ideals want to, we want to get more back to say maybe biblical ideas of our responsibility to god and our neighbor and you know, living in community and all these types of things, right? Well, okay, that's that's wonderful, but how are you going to do that? Well, first thing you have to do is get rid of the administrative state and, and technique in the administrative state. Well, once you do that, even if you still have government, um, it's going to radically change because you're going to have no policy manuals. You're probably not going to have computers. Um, you're going to have to get rid of modern business, um, the assembly lines, right? Um, so you're, gra you're, you're going to vastly reduce your ability to produce economic wealth. You're, you know, all of these types of things go all hand in hand. Like the, when you're talking about bringing down the state and, 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 and introducing a conservative regime, you're really talking about the end of modernity, right? So, okay, that's great. You want to bring down the end of modernity. I guess, you know, that type of apocalyptic vision. Um, and that's kind of your, you know, the Unabomber sort of... Um, you know, Ted Kaczynski sort of, that was the, you know, you can go the Ted Kaczynski model and he was really right about everything. Um, so just, you know, if you want Some to read things. the Unabomber Manifesto, they found, they found a Lewis technological society on his bedside, right? When they, when they inventoried his house. So and the Bible um, actually. Kaczynski read a little and the Bible. Yeah. It, it, it's, I don't think he converted I, I went finally and no, I read the, the you, you read the, the Unabomber Manifesto and um, like, wow. He was right about pretty much everything. But okay, so then, you know, you have this kind of all-encompassing, all-in-framing um, technical society, right? Um, and part of the, its logic and its thing is that it wants to replace um, human agency and authority, but also um, divine agency and authority, right? Because in order to make the technical system policy possible, you had to dispense with the idea that economics and learning and technology are subordinate to the realities of faith. In other words, you know, the very biblical idea that there are some things you shouldn't know. The tree is in the garden. It's an old story, right? Um, and that, you know, you can't serve two masters. You can serve either God or money, right? Um, and so there are limits, and the church used to impose them. And one of the reasons why the bourgeoisie managerial class overthrew the nobility and the hierarchies because they were preventing them from moving forward with science, learning, and technology and the making of money. And and so, especially the last one, that was probably one of the of biggest money. causes of you know yes. lots of revolutions in Europe was the making of money. There's lots the of making of money top down, you know, from the monarchy and from the church imposing, saying. Actually, there are certain uh, economic things that we don't want you to do. So, like prostitution yeah. is going to be discouraged. We're not going to trade with countries that we think are really immoral, like the Ottoman Empire or something. You know, usury is illegal. You're not going to loan with interest to people and stuff like that. And that was a massive barrier to economies growing. When you had three giant empires, you had well, four actually: you had the Russian Empire, the British Empire, the French Empire, and the Spanish Empire to some degree. And they were all in their business of expanding. They needed more money to feed their war machine and their 
and their uh, their expansion overseas. And so one of the that was one of the main causes of church authority becoming so much less in Europe. Yeah, and one of the things that goes along with this is a drive towards focusing on material reality. So there's an inherent materialism that comes along with um, the technological society, right? And so the, what Alul argues is that eventually, as you drive God out of the public sphere into the private realm, um, you, you don't end up with a religionless society, right? That vacuum gets filled because every great society has a religious impulse at its core. And so um, from a metaphysical level, sort of you had this sort of the hierarchy of being with God at the capstone and everything sort of arranged nicely, you know, God, king, church, everybody had their role, everybody had their place in the grand hierarchy of being. And, um, you know, you didn't rebel against the king because that was like rebelling against God, right? And so all of that order was pushed aside and a, a new kind of metaphysical order came in to fill the void and to take its place, right? And the, the, the metaphysical order that comes in, fills in to take its place is that of the, the administrative state. So the state becomes the metaphysical reality of our society, right? And so it, it takes on the role at once of both being religion and being God at the same time. Right, so the state becomes And I think there's God. a very important distinction also with oh, like monarchies of the past. You, you wouldn't have such a contribution to the society in the same going. sense. Let's hope it's yeah, that's uh, right. Can you hear me? Hope we can repeat it. <laughs> yes. Here, let me just text. Can you hear me? Them. Let me go in the chat really quick. And he's got his finger out, so he's going strong there. <laughs> <laughs> um. Ah. Uh. So I'll Let's fill see. the space just he for a has... second while he's so the you have this okay. the state taking on this this metaphysical role, and Elul argues that then so really what you've got is almost like a clash of gods. So you have this all-encompassing technological society that becomes has a metaphysical era. So in a sense, you now and this is why within the Western culture, unless like say another culture were to take over and and to conquer the West, I don't really see. This is the reason why I've argued that the future of the, the dissident right is Christian, because really what you've got is within the Western culture, an internecine fight between the technical administrative state, which has set itself up as the metaphysical reality, i.e. a substitute God, and um, Christianity, you know, the living God of the scriptures. And so you have this clash of gods. Now, you were going to say something, Landon. Yeah, Landon, we got you back. Yes. Can you guys hear me now? Oh, yes, yeah. we're good. We can hear you. <laughs> there we go. So I was saying how with a monarchy and monarchies of the past, you wouldn't have the same direct contribution level to a society as a normal citizen. And where the allure, I believe, of the administrative state comes in is you believe you are still part of the machine. You are a cog of the machine. And that's where it becomes almost this illusory view of, okay, I can actually change things. I can actually kind of conform to it or conform others where in a monarchy or when you had the hierarchy of like king church god you didn't have the same involvement extent and so it does appeal to kind of this base desire of control and when riley was mentioning like the ottoman empire and others you'd have this self-preservation 
conflict. Well, well, yes, and, so... and, and like you said too, they, they, so the the merchant class basically wanted control, and to mm. you know, and this is one thing that like an author like Carl Schmidt argued that the system of rights and freedoms that we have was largely he calls it almost like an anti-state was to largely keep the state out of the of the personal affairs of people so that they could go about their private affairs of business, right? But unfortunately, what ends up happening is that because it's of the, the twofold thing of, of democratic institutions and adjudicating rights, that eventually what happens is, is that as rights conflict, somebody has to adjudicate them, right? And if they're not right. adjudicated in community, they're adjudicated by the state. And so the state fills it with laws and judgments. And the other thing is in order to get elected, you have to pander to the needs of the people. So what happens is you need to, to pander to ever greater needs, everything. And so eventually right. you end up, the state ends up taking over all, it becomes the, involved in the totality of people's lives. Even if they feel free, they live within a reality in which the state is involved in the totality of their life. Whereas before, politics was something that the king and the nobles did off there, but they largely left your life alone for the most part, other than the tax man came around every once in a while. Or if you were part of a guild, they dictated how your, you know, your products were supposed to be made. But for the most part, you really didn't have much government involvement in your life. Your life was actually generally governed by a whole system of, of, um, of Christian festivals, more or less, right? So your life was was governed largely by by the church and by faith and 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 that yearly cycle of of festivals and so forth, right? So now we have this great metaphysical clash between the you know the merchant class who has pushed aside the church, right, into the private sphere, and and the Christian community. And unfortunately, we as a church have have, and that's one of the things that we're going to have to do is to learn how to cleanse ourselves of enlightenment thinking, right? That's one of these processes we're going to have to go through. So now, okay, so we don't want to bring down, you know, are we going to topple a god? Because that's really what we're trying to do with, with bringing down the administrative state. So we're trying to topple a god, right? That has set itself up as, the, as a false god, as a pseudo-god. And that's like business, state, everything. We have this, this grand technical system that we can loosely call in its totality the state has set itself up as a divine metaphysical order. So we, how do you then break free from that, right? Um, well, so it, it tends to inframe you and it tends to inframe all of our life. So we've talked about this. We go back to now, we sort of loop back to the beginning, right? And this is the real potential of the, of the church. And so we go back to our basics. We are an intentional community that disciples people into Christ, and we have this alternate narrative, right? So the, the administrative state is run by this narrative of human progress. That, that's the grand story. And it's, you know, evolutionary theory, right? Which is just terrible philosophy. It's terrible science. Um, it's just, it's just so dumb, true. Right? So, so true. But, but again, it provides a grand narrative. So, so you ask yourself, if, if there is no God, how did we get here? Right. Well, you can impose you. You tell basically a creation story, and you impose it onto the the data. Right. And and so their story, you know, and this is one thing about the postmodern world. Once you kind of embrace its realities, um, that their story is no more credible and there's no more validity than our story. Right. So, but we believe our story is true, and we're going to act as if our story is true. I sound like Jordan Peterson. Now that's terrible. Um, <laughs> right. But but our story is true. Right. And yeah. so. 
we but we're, we, we bring people out and we have this Christian community. So we go back to the basics. And this is the one, the beautiful thing about the Christian community is that we can, we can return to sort of doing the core things. So we have faith, we teach faith, we disciple each other, we meet, we worship, we pray. Now this allows us, okay, so we're, we're going to talk, bring in, in that Italian philosopher, Augusto del Noce. Right now, Del Noce was a, a Catholic, so we have to remember that. Which was, you know, that it is what it is. But we're at so a Catholic Del university, no so not that big. Yeah, of a deal. Oh, there you go. So Del <laughs> Noce um, looked at both, and and this is the one thing that's really nice about Del Noce is he looks at 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 the modern world at both fascism and Marxism, right? And he takes fascists seriously. So that's you, you go in there, and he's actually discussing fascist authors, and you think like, oh my word, I've got to read these guys because he's discussing them, and I'm. I've never, you know, but he reads them as if they're credit, you know, he reads them like credible thinkers because they are, right? Um, and so he says, but he says both Marx and fascism grow up in a kind of a post-Nietzschean world in which the baseline is accepted that God is it. So when the fascists talk about and, and the Nietzschean right talk about we need to embrace myth and we need to embrace you know the Greek myth whatever they're not talking about a real religious reality right they're talking about embracing the myths they know that they're not really a real thing but the myths still have power and so they wanted to tap into that power but there's still that understanding that they're in a post-Nietzschean world right and so what Del Noce argued is that to escape the trap of both left and right. He says, we have to look at finding something in our society that lives. And he says, well, what lives is the living tradition of the Christian church and the Christian faith. But he didn't just sort of talk about the church as church, but he wanted to say, we have to get to a point where, and he calls his ontologism in a sense that God is related to as, in a sense, a datum of knowledge, in a sense, where you meet God and you know him, and that encounter with God forms the basis of your knowledge, right? right? My pastor it's not always an abstract this. thing. Yeah, it's, it's not an abstract thing. You go up the mountain, you meet with God, and that meeting forms the basis. And, and Del Noche talks about authority and the crisis of authority. And so we talk about, too, like, uh, the technical system wants to abstract everything into systems and plans and so forth, right? Well, the problem is, and then Schmidt pointed this out, is that we live within this closed system of reality because it's not grounded on anything. It's, it's grounded on itself, right? So Del Noce says is that real authority comes from that experience with God with that encounter with the divine. And you look at the Bible, right? Well, where does our faith come from? Well, our faith comes from, you accept the fact that Moses went up the mountain and he met with God and he met with them at the burning bush, right? You accept the fact that um, Samuel, that God was calling to Samuel in the night, right? That David met God, that, you know, Elisha met God, that Paul met God on the road to Damascus. And of course, that Christ was God, right? And there is really nothing in Scripture to say that God hasn't stopped speaking to us, right? I know that's, you know, the, as a Protestant, you're not really supposed to say things like that. Well, if but, you're a Calvinist, there, there are other Protestants who are totally fine with that. I know. I, 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 I get myself into trouble. But so it's, it's you know, this, this idea. So 
we, but see, the, Del Noche says you're not just meeting God in the abstract, though. You're meeting, and he talks about this as authority. One of the things, like, with, like he's an authority in the subject, right? So he talks about authority using its original world to, to bring out or to bring up. Right, so the the person of authority raises people up and teaches people. So he goes up the mountain. He's an authority, and then he raises up, in a sense, disciples. Right, but so that you have this long living tradition, and you do so. So what sets the boundaries for this? Well, you have a whole long tradition of men and women who have gone up the mountain and who've met God and who've come down the mountain, and then it's so. Yeah, what. What Del Noche argues is that to break the crisis of modernity, right, this post-Nietzschean world, Marxism, fascism, and also, you know, the subversion of Marxism by, you know, how um, progressivism, um, you know, absorbed capitalism into it in the sense that Marxism won, basically. It's funny. Even though the Americans won the Cold War, Marxism won. Um, but... Um, the because the vision of history was embraced, right? The, the right. progressive nature of his. So they subverted. They subverted progressive. They inverted progressivism, right? So instead of taking down capitalism, um, the revolutionaries were um, domestic to use capitalism as a way yeah, to well, achieve and, and progress they, in the same way that Marx would That's say. right. Administra it becomes a thing of progress. So now you, through administ the administrators now will administer progress. But the revolutionary impulse is turned on the enemies of progress, which are the backwards people who are resisting progress, which are mainly those rooted in living tradition. So this is why specifically the woke and, and the progressives, um, if there's ever a crisis where progress really stalls, um, Christians will, like James Lindsay was actually right. It just didn't happen this summer, right? But yeah. that the progressives will turn to Christians because they'll say, the reason why we're not going forward is because these people are, these backwards Christians are holding us back. And if we just get right. rid of the backwards Christians, progress will restart again, right? So that's why, in a sense, true conservatism in the West has to be considered evil. This is why, like people like on the right, many don't really get it. Like, you know, voting your guys isn't going to do anything because the system, as constructed from the ground up, the whole grand the the state, the 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 revolutionary world that we live in, considers a true conservative view to be backwards and evil and holding back the utopia that we know is going to come forward through technical administration. Right. Yeah. So, now what does this mean for us as community? Well, you have this, all of the effects that accumulate because of the use of technology. So first of all, we come a place where we teach people then how to break out of the technical system by reorienting them. They're never going to be able to escape it entirely. So we'll hopefully try to teach a different relationship to technology that isn't um, progressive, right? That allows us to use tools where our skill matters in the tool. But the, the main thing is that we're, teaching people how to meet with God, to break out of the system and to connect with that, with ontological reality, with the presence of God, right? Um, in prayer, right? So this is why this whole thing, when you talk about churches, like the head, heart split or whatever, is just so destructive because it's not about emotion, you know, that you're thinking too much. No, it's that you've rationed, this is the day, this is what Protestantism did. It rationalized the faith and made it acceptable for a materialist world. 
right? So we have to get away from rationalized faith towards actually meeting God, you know, right. that terrifying presence in the Holy of Holies, right? And we ground ourselves in community, in the presence of God, in the living tradition. And then as a community, we build out from there, right? Now, then this, you know, that, and that's where we get back to in terms of like political realities and so forth, right? Sooner or later, um, if we're successful in this, the state will see us as a threat, right? And so this is where, like, I've joked with Charles before, you know, we need like the Benedict, Benedict option, but with guns, right? Um, and this is where, like, the, the so, so you have two options. You can either like martyrdom, which is a real option. That's a credible option as a Christian is martyrdom. But there are those who are tasked, and this is the role of the the kingly role in in a in a community. Is some are tasked with protection, uh, protecting the people, right? And so those people um, may be called to use violence to protect other folks who who are fellow believers, right? And um, you know this this, and then the question is is, and Alul actually goes farther. He says sometimes the only way to the only way to speak prophetically is to use violence. That violence becomes a form of prophecy, right? So Alul's can be like Alul was a Calvinist, right? So he's you know Calvinists can be pretty um, you know cold that way shall we say right just sort of the cold efficient the, the cold ruthless of just do what needs doing <laughs> that's right that's kind of, it, yeah that's the, that's sort of in a sense the calvinist spirit right um but there there is a certain truth to it that way right so um but the the biggest thing is and i think this is where working and forming communities is to think of yourself as a place where what we're trying to build is a is a refuge where people can find a place to free themselves from the oppressive nature of the state, where they can reconnect with God, reconnect with the community, where we can build something that, because technology, is, because it's a form of knowing, it's it's like the garden. Once you've taken the bite from the apple, unless there's like, when you go into a new dark ages and you're like 600, 700 years and people have forgotten how to use like technical systems or whatever, maybe, but you know, you're not going to benefit from that. The, the only way to really deal with technology is, is, is morally, that in a sense, you place limits on it as a society and community. Say that, you know, this is as far as we're going to go and we're going to go no farther. This is how we're going to relate with this technology and, and we as a community are going to place it within limits. This mm -hmm. is how we're going to deal with the economy and, and money making and we're going to place limits on, on the making of money. This is one of the things um, we're that's... Going to Sorry, go ahead. This, no, this go is ahead. one of the things that uh, C.S. Lewis like devotes a great deal of time. Sorry, I have to get in my my every episode C.S. Lewis reference. But oh, uh, absolutely, this is this is what he deals with in that hideous strength is one of the things. One of the problems about what what you would call the technical system is the inquisitive nature of science. And there's really now that Christianity is not there in the background as sort of the dominant force in the culture, not only in the West but even now. In America, in America, was it took a little longer for America because Europe kind of materialized first. But this is the point that Lewis made, which is that scientists' inquisitive nature with no moral limits placed upon it, scientists are the bad guys, if that's the case. Like, they're, they're the ones who will deliver us straight into the age of the Antichrist, which is illustrated by that book. And as I've said several times before, you should read C.S. Lewis and you should read all of his books. But 
anyway. Yes. Well, and that's the thing. Um, and Luol makes a similar point in, in, in regards to technology, though. And it's because it's a form of knowing and a form of knowledge, and it, it, it acquires what technology does and technique does is it gives you power, right? And it has the potential to make money. So in a sinful world, if something is going to give you power over other people, and it's going to be able to make you a lot of money, you can have a great number of very moral, upright, and virtuous people. But all it takes is, you know, one or two very bad people, and they will embrace technique and technology because of the power it can give them and the money it can make them, right? So what Alul says is that, and this is one of the things where he talks, when he talks about necessity, is that, yes, you want to make a virtuous state, but now that you've open the door to technical society, you might desire to rid yourself of technique. Um, the Amish have done this, but the Amish are only only live at the sufferance of the technical state. If the Amish ever became a threat, they would be squashed, mm -hmm. right? You, may, so, you mentioned this before in a different episode. You were talking about one of the kinds of technology, and one of them is like, the example you gave was tanks. And if they're, yes. if the country next to you is building tanks, you kind of have to suck it up and build tanks, even if you have moral qualms with it, because if you don't, you're going to get crushed. Yeah. So if you're an Amish community and you know, you're, you're becoming a threat to your neighbor and they've got tanks and you don't have tanks and nobody is willing to like say, you're not living under the umbrella. And this is the oh. one thing Alul points out in his book, Violence, is that the Amish are able to maintain their nonviolence um, at the expense of the violence of, of the American state. So they pass off their violence onto the American state. So they're able to live purely because other people are committing violence on their behalf, right? And so, you know, again, it, it's so at a certain point in time, if the Amish were to become a threat, they would have two choices. They can either martyr themselves, which is a valid option as a Christian, right? Um, or, you know, you have an assembly line with tanks. Now, it might be that maybe you make your tanks differently and you do so in a different relationship to tech, you know, technique. And there might be certain limits like say, hey, listen, we're just not going to build the bomb. And so if somebody's going to drop a nuclear bomb on us, that's, you know, we're, you know, we're good with God and, and we'll deal with that, right? But we're not going to build nuclear weapons ourselves. But, you know, if, if we can build tanks in a way that does not make us subservient to a technical system, maybe we can find a way to be comfortable in our relationship to a tank and to the way that we build it, and, and we can do so in a way that enhances human agency and so for the best as possible, um, that, you know, we don't, we recognize that we don't have the political choices that we would like to have, but we can make the best choices that we can make in a sinful world to do what we need to do to survive as a people. And, and these are, I think, are some of the realities that, that, you know, you get some in Christian leadership who, when you talk like this, they just, they set their hair on fire because they, 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 they just can't get to, well, we have to have ethical politics. And I'm like, yeah, like, let me talk to you about your ethical politics, um, because you're either going to end up being hypocritical or ineffectual, because... Unfortunately, we live in a world where it's a sinful world and your neighbor doesn't have any ethics. And so, you know, um, I, I, I get that you want to keep your hands clean, um, but, you know, um, unless you want to be run over by tanks, um, maybe you might want to build a few tanks. Um, and, and 
so some of these types of things, it's, you know, it, 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 and I think we're sort of getting into a new era of sort of what you would call Christian realism in terms of politics, where we're starting to grapple with some of these realities. And we come back to you sort of since, okay, you deal with these realities, but we do so coming again back to that core that we're a community <clears throat> who desires to meet God and to disciple each other and we are really seeking to be a community of grace that we want to live into that world of grace that in a sense leaves the world of necessity the necessities of sin behind and we take hold of the the inheritance that is ours in christ right that's the the, the reality that we're really trying to reveal and we are saddened that we can't in this life um fully realize that, that and but we live in grace and we know that we may have to do some very hard things that imperil our soul we we may not be allowed because we don't live in a reality where there's just one ring of power unfortunately and so we don't get just to drop it into mount doom but there's 10 rings of power right and now we're faced with the with the choice of um you know we have to become boromir and use the ring of power because, and we recognize that it's going to imperil our soul. Um, but, you know, in a sense, we live in a world of grace and we place ourselves at the mercy of God, right? Um, and we hope yeah. that we do so that, you know, and you think to yourself, like, God, God would really call you to do this. Well, yeah, like, you know, you look at some of the, the things of necessity he had, you know, were done in the Old Testament, so to speak, or Ananias and Sapphira, you know? Um, that was an action of divine necessity to show the importance of, you know, the new realm that was breaking in and the, you know, um, of, of what was being founded um, in Christ, in the spirit there too. You know, they, they lied to God and they lied to the people and they just dropped dead on the spot. Well, you know, God had to do the hard thing, right? And they were judged, right? So the, the time for grace for them ended. Um, because they, yeah, it is. yeah so they, they, it sent an important lesson, right? So it's, it's one of these things where we live in this very complex world. And I, I really wish that it were nice and clean and that we could just move into grace and we could live in a world of grace and we could all be close to God and we could all, you know what, but that's not until Christ returns, that's not the world that we live in. Right, you know, so we're not trying to build utopia here. We're just trying to do the best we can to reveal Christ in this world, and trying to develop a relationship with technology that is perhaps necessary and built upon restraint, but a recognition that maybe we don't always have the kind of freedom of choice that we would like to. Yeah, the wise restraints that we always wish we could strive for better, but well, and um, that's it's. Well, and this oh, is really why quick. we, and there's no way Riley, that you can account. Yeah. yeah. Riley is currently muted. Oh, so sorry ready. to have this repetition be a challenge again, but uh, I think he's no, going to fine. have to it, it's, yeah, reload. Bail. So I will just wrap that up. So in the end, it comes down to sort of like, well, what do you do if you don't have technical systems? Well, in the end, you rely on wise leaders, right? And that's mm -hmm. and that's really where it comes back down to is, you know, we rely on the people who have gone up the mountain and have met God on the mountain, right? And and these are the men that we're looking to to answer the question of in this moment, like, you know, with Solomon and the, the two you know, whose baby is it, right? You know, or 
Um, you know, so, you know, Moses, you know, do we build tanks or don't we build tanks? You know, Moses, do we use social media or don't we use social media? And one of the things that we have in our society is a crisis of leadership and a crisis of authority. And we look to systems and, and, and technique to answer to the policy manual, the rule of law that will give us always the right answers, right? You know what I mean? Um, right. You know, so that we have the scary thing now too, like, you know, so we'd like to sort of say a rule as well. I, I could never be, you know, people may accuse me of being a racist, but I don't want to be a racist, right? Well, there might be a time where necessity might demand, you know, there's a, there's a time for planting, a time for harvesting, there's a time for peace, there's a time for war. You know, maybe there's a time for racism too. Right. And you think to yourself, really, there can't be, you know, so how do you know when it's that time? Well, I, you can't write a policy manual that will tell you that, but a wise guy might, you know, be able to say that, you know, it, as much as we dislike that this is the time that we're in, maybe this is the time that we're in. And um, there's no really right answer that way ahead of time. You won't know in the moment until, you know, like the, the passage in, in that I've often used in Proverbs 26, verse four and five, where the first one says, um, you know, don't correct a fool or you'll be caught up in his folly. And then the, the next very next verse says, correct a fool or who remains stuck in his folly. And you think, well, it's two bits of opposite advice. Well, what's going on? Yeah. Well, it really shows you that the, the, there is no answer in a sense, but you walk before the face of God and in the moment when you face the fool, you will know what to do, right? And so that's, the, I think, the kind of thing that we're looking to foster in contrast to the technical world is that kind of knowing, right? And that's, you know, in a sense, what, what the, the, the substack is all, you know, seeking the hidden thing. So you're seeking that thing that lives between two contrary um, bits of advice or proverbs. And wisdom lies in that space that, that's in between. In that moment, you, you go up the mountain, you meet God, and then in the moment, you will know what to do. And those are the kind of people that we need to be called, you know, fostering and, and cultivating. And they will only be fostered and cultivated in, in community, in the encounter with God, um, sort of that ontological, ontologism, you know. So it's deeply spiritual, profoundly mystical, um, and a refuge from the technical world. So, and that's, you know, sort of, that's why you build these communities so you can find these places where together we can encounter God on the mountain. Yeah, it's so true because everyone always asks like, where have you met God or where have you actually felt closest in your relationship? And the answer is like prayer in community in these yeah. small spaces and sacred places. So, yeah. yeah. You'd love so to hear a, like a Supreme Court confirmation is, you know, tell me the story, your story of going up the mountain to meet God. Mm. That's when you'll know that society has really turned a page. <laughs> really? That, uh, the day that hell freezes over, right? Yeah, there you go, right? So anyways, but probably we've had some technical stuff. I think, I guess it's getting on to like 20 to 11. We've been here at this for a while. It's been really fun, guys. I've, I've really enjoyed yeah. this. So. Yeah, this has been really informative. And for recording, because Riley is not here, I'll just quickly wrap it up. Well, I thank yeah. you, Cryptos. Knowing the technical difficulties, this has been a very great episode of being able Thank to you. cover very, very meta topics of like the administrative state of the technical system, of we, how to be a Christian. Uh, we in went this all culture. over the place, so hopefully it may, it'll make some sense <laughs> to your listeners when it's all said and done. So we just let me, you guys just let me ramble for two hours, so that was good.
<laughs> it was a good way to end at our Friday. Friday. So this That's is Friday. the crux of the matter. And we'll see you guys next time.